The Word was God. May God please bless the reading of His Word. All right. I think we got some lines crossed in our scripture reading. That's not Brian's fault. That's my fault for not checking the, the slides. We were going to read from Micah this morning, but that's okay. Uh, in, in the prophets, we're constantly seeing these promises of a child that will come of someone who's going to set things right that have been wrong for a very long time. Um, and so this morning, as we, as we think about that, I want us to reflect on uh, a passage of Scripture that's tremendously exciting to everybody, I know, the genealogy of Jesus. You know, we've done this before. We've looked at genealogies. I always give the disclaimer that I realize most people find genealogies dry and boring, I hope this morning, by the time that we get to the end of the genealogy of Jesus, you consider it one of your most exciting and interesting passages in Scripture. I've chosen to call our sermon series for the month of December, Worst Christmas Ever. That is not in anticipation of me preaching badly, I hope. Um, It is, however, an idea that I want to share with you that sometimes... We have Christmases that don't quite live up to the expectations that we have for them. And, and sometimes that uh, you know, ends up being a situation that we feel a little depressed about. We, we get to the end of the holiday season and we're like, this is not what I planned for. This is not what I expected. Or maybe in the midst, as we're reflecting on what's going on, we're saying, this is not what I thought Christmas was going to be. But oftentimes when we look back on those years... There are stories that our families tell over and over and over again, reflections on the Christmas that was. And those worst Christmases ever sometimes become the best stories that we tell as a family. And so I want to tell you about one of the worst Christmases ever in the Dunning family. We had, uh, we had moved to the Houston area, uh, a little town called Angleton, when Micah was about two years old. He was not quite two yet. Uh, We moved in November. We got there. We spent Thanksgiving with folks from the the church there. Uh, It was my first full-time youth ministry position. It was a really wonderful experience. We enjoyed the people that we were there with, but mid-December, we were already a little homesick. Lorinda had never really lived away from her family for any real length of time because she went to school in Portland for college, about 10 minutes drive away from home. She was on the same city block that she had grown up going to school at because she went to Columbia, the K-12 through school. And then she went to Cascade right next door for her college experience. She had attended church at the East Side Church of Christ. This was her world contained on a single city block. It was, it was home. And she married a minister who packed her up and moved her to a foreign land, a strange land, the land of Texas. And it was very different for her. It was culture shock in many ways. But one of the contingent promises was that we would go back for Christmas as often as we could. We would go back and we would spend time with the family. If we could, we'd make a trip during the summer. If we could, we'd do at least two trips a year home. And Lorinda usually got to make those two trips. I didn't always get to make both trips because oftentimes the summer trip conflicted with a busy life in youth ministry. But it was a long distance. We're a large country. We span an entire continent from coast to coast. And even the midpoint of our country 
is a long ways away. So the first year we went home for Christmas. The second year, we had had Emma. It was a, a really exciting time in our lives. We, we uh, anticipated the arrival of Emma. We were excited about having her. She was, she was wonderful and glorious. But traveling with a small child is a little difficult. I don't know if you've ever traveled with a child that's under a year old. It is not necessarily a lot of fun, despite what the people say. Getting on an airplane with a child that's got a runny nose, gets the congestion in their ears, and just, you know, very uncomfortable. That said, Emma was actually a pretty good traveler. And the second year that we were in Texas, we booked our flight, and being economic people, we decided that we were going to try to get the least expensive flight home that we could, so that the second flight that we would have to take that year back to Portland to visit family would be achievable for us. And so we booked a flight, and this is Micah waiting for the flight on the floor of the airport. Kind of a disgusting place to take a nap, but when you're, you know, two and a half years old, almost three years old, that's what you do. Actually, almost four at this point. And this is Emma sleeping on my chest at the airport because we were delayed. The flight that we had booked was delayed, and we waited an extra two hours at the airport for what was a delayed flight. And at the end of that two-hour period, we were told that, in fact, the flight had not just been delayed, but it was canceled. And that was kind of disheartening to us. We, we really wanted to go home. We were homesick. This was year number two of living in Texas. Lorinda had been uh, pregnant the previous summer. It was 100 degrees, over 100 degrees, for 100 days in a row at 100% humidity. And our marriage survived it. That's how much she loves me. It's amazing. We had, we had been there for two years, and Lorinda was ready to go home and see her family. And I remember sitting there in the airport as the great villain of our story, Spirit Airlines, announced that our flight was canceled. By the way, don't ever fly Spirit. If, you've, if you work for Spirit, I apologize. I'm going to slag on your company. I don't think anyone in our church does. But Spirit Airlines canceled our flight and became the villain of our story. We weren't going home as far as we could tell. And I watched as tears filled my wife's eyes. And I felt my daughter laying on my chest, who was very unhappy, very disgruntled to have been at the airport as long as she was. And my poor son laying on the floor, who was ready to go home or get on an airplane because he was super excited to fly on an airplane. And it was looking like he was going to do neither, that we were going to be stuck in the airport overnight because they told us, well, we can probably get you on a flight tomorrow, probably get you on a flight tomorrow. And so I pulled out my phone. And I started looking to see if I could book a last-minute flight. And so I'm going through my phone. I'm, I'm trying to find a flight that we can get on. And there is exactly one flight out of Houston with a connecting layover flight in, in uh, Vegas. And I'm thinking, if I can get us on this flight, we'll get home. And we'll only be like 40, not even 40, like 15 hours behind at this point. And I booked the flight. And to great relief, we were able to take the flight. The only problem is there's two international airports in the Houston area. And we had an hour and a half to get to the other airport 
and get through security so we could get on the flight to fly where we were going. Fortunately, they had brought us our carry-on bags that we were asked to check by Spirit Airlines, and we were able to take them. We got there. We had it like 10 minutes before they closed the gate for us to be able to get in. It was wonderful. We actually walked right onto the flight, sat down, and realized that the tickets I had booked were first-class tickets. And because it was a last-minute flight, they really weren't that much more than our Spirit Airline tickets had been. And they bring Micah a, a champagne flute filled with orange juice. And I'm leaning back, and they bring me like a hot towel to put on my face. And, and like all of a sudden, what was a really traumatic experience where we weren't sure we were going to get home became the best flight I've ever been on. Now, the second leg of our flight was not first class, but the first leg was they had to cram us on there in order to be able to make the connection. It was the worst Christmas ever until it wasn't. As far as we were concerned, when we were sitting at the Houston airport thinking there is no possible way that we're going to get home tonight, things shifted. We had to you know, drive down to uh, Bush Intercontinental Airport, in order to fly to Portland, but it turned out for the better. We talk about this all the time. Uh, Sometimes we talk about it fondly, sometimes we talk about it not so fondly, but generally speaking, the fact that the one and only first-class flight I've ever been on was the result of an accidental cancellation by Spirit Airlines, that to me seems like a really nice little serendipitous moment. We wanted a particular journey, We had in mind an itinerary and a plan. We knew what it was supposed to look like, and it failed to live up to our expectations. But it all worked out for the good. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is how the Gospel of Matthew begins. By telling us that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham and David. And for the readers of this book, that's good news. That's pretty exciting because they've been waiting for the offspring of Abraham. They've been waiting for the offspring of David. This is the journey that they expect. This is what they want. This is what they've been longing for, looking forward to. If they could put together their itinerary, it would include a stop at Abraham and a stop at David. That's what they want. But then we begin to read the genealogy. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Okay? We're going to stop right there. There are two more sections of this that we could read, but I I want to stop and consider the names that we're reading here. Abraham, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Tamar, Hezron, Ram, Nashon, Salmon, Rahab, Boaz, Obed, Ruth, and Jesse. We'll get to David in a minute. Think about those names. These are the people that comprise the genealogy of Jesus. In this case, most of them have stories that are specifically told about them in Scripture. 
These are people that we can mostly recount the histories of. Now, there are a handful of names in there that the Bible doesn't really spend a whole lot of time dwelling on. They appear in the genealogies of the people that they lead to, but they are not significant figures outside of the fact that they are a part of the genealogy of Jesus, or in this case, the genealogy of David. I want you to think about what these names imply to us. If you take a look at the left up there, these are the people that we have really specific, thoughtful stories about. Jesse, maybe we kind of have a a bit of a story about him. The birth of Obed is significant, but we don't really have a whole lot of uh, discussion about him as an individual. But the people on the left, these might be considered the major figures in the genealogy of Jesus. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah and Tamar, Salmon and Rahab, Boaz and Ruth. Abraham, major player. Perez, not so much. Abraham was a polygamist. He abandoned his child. He attempted deception on multiple occasions. I want you to think about the fact that he goes and he, he obfuscates the truth. I'll be generous here. Obfuscates the truth towards multiple kings about the identity of his wife, which causes calamity for the people who are maybe interested in his wife. Isaac played favorites with his children. He also kind of copies his dad on the whole deception of kings thing. Jacob was a polygamist, a liar, a deceiver, a schemer. He played favorites with his children. We look at Judah and Tamar. She deceived her father-in-law into sleeping with her, and he thought it was okay because he assumed she was just a pagan cult prostitute. Salmon and Rahab, she actually was a prostitute and a non-Israelite. Boaz, she was not only a non-Israelite, but a Moabite, and she previously married a guy named Sickness, which makes me wonder about her judgment. These are the figures that appear in the genealogy of Jesus. Now keep in mind, I just said, when a person opens the book of Matthew, especially an Israelite person who has studied the Old Testament for years and years and years. They're happy to see David and Abraham at the top of the list. As I said, those are the, the guys that, like, if you're going to have two stops on the journey to Jesus, these are the ones you want. Because Abraham was made a promise by God that through him, all nations would be blessed. David was told that through him, a king would come whose throne would never expire. Those are kind of essential stops on the path to Jesus. But you don't get to those stops without some really difficult things in between. These are not, if I were writing the Bible, if I were making it up, the kind of people that I would choose to place in the life of my Messiah. These are not the kind of people that you say, pillar of of morality, pillar of wonderful virtue, and and someone that I want to be just like. Now, keep in mind, the scriptures, specifically the books of Hebrews, or book of Hebrews, talks about many of these individuals in a positive light, not necessarily because of their actions, but because of their faith. These are flawed, broken, oftentimes difficult to like people. These are people who let you down. These are people who don't live up to our expectations for what the people of God are going to look like. 
these are people that would disappoint us. And Matthew doesn't shy away from a single one of them. Matthew includes all of the gory details. Now, now you're looking at it and you're saying, ah, Matthew kind of makes it very sterile. As you read through it, you know, you, you don't have it pointed out that Tamar, you know, seduced her father-in-law by practicing cult prostitution or posing as a cult prostitute. Have you ever stopped to think about how strange it is that she knew that this was a way to entrap him into doing the thing that he was supposed to do from the very beginning? She knows him well enough that this is not a surprise to her that he falls into her trap. What does that say about Judah? They don't shy away from the fact that Rahab is a foreigner and that her, her own actual profession was one of very questionable repute. That Ruth was a member of a nation that was detestable to the Israelite people. You're saying, yeah, but Matthew doesn't call those things out. But Matthew doesn't have to include Tamar and Rahab and Ruth in the genealogy. He chooses to. Why in the world would you write a genealogy about a bunch of bozos and people who do the wrong thing so often? I'm sorry if I'm reducing people down to bozos here. Keep in mind, again, heroes of the faith, definitely worthy of being in the book of Hebrews and recounting that they were people of faith who did great things by faith, but not because they were themselves great people, but because they served a great God. Why does Matthew put this list of people front and center as he introduces the person of Jesus. But we have this wonderful little piece here that reminds us, you know, all of that came before. Remember, he's not just the son of Abraham. He's also the son of David. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We want to emphasize David here for just a moment. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And we now find that even the one that we were maybe most anxious or excited, enthusiastic about seeing Jesus descend from, immediately has his adultery placed on display. David was the father of Solomon. And in case you forgot it, it was by the wife of another man. We could read through the rest of the genealogy, and I'm going to tell you there are some great kings in there. There's Solomon himself, who's a wonderful, glorious king, who asks for wisdom and is given wisdom and does the right thing in so many cases. And he glorifies God and he establishes the temple. He builds it where his father had envisioned it. And then he practices polygamy in a way that his forefathers could only possibly imagine and begins worshiping the gods of his many wives, and leads the people into idolatry. But Rehoboam comes along, and Rehoboam sets things straight, right? You read through the list of kings that follow these men, and it is a veritable roller coaster. You've got the highs and the lows, these guys who are enthusiastically worshiping God, and maybe on the side, just you know, not quite as enthusiastically 
building shrines to Asherah. And you ultimately find this moment where there is a a man named Amon who is so wicked and so bad that God promises his people, I am going to bring an end to the rule of this line for the time being and send you into exile because it would be better that you be ruled by a foreign king who knows justice than by this line of men. There's one king in between there who's a really good guy. His name is Josiah. He's a young man when he takes the throne. He is a radical reformer and tries to draw the people back to what it is that God desires for them. But it's too late. The Babylonian exile has been written in stone at that point. And that's how the third third paragraph of the genealogy of Jesus begins with the Babylonian exile. Why does God choose to begin the gospel of Jesus Christ with these people? Why in the world does Matthew see fit to write down these names that with just a little research we can go back and discover how flawed they were. I want to suggest to you this morning that the flaws are not a bug. They're a feature of the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, sorry, I I forgot I had emphasized this really strongly and didn't actually use it. If we read the genealogy of Jesus... What we discover is catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe. And that's not accidental. I think Matthew wants us to see, I think God wants us to see, the flaws of the people that came before. This is actually from the Greek words kata and strophe, downward turn. You see the life of Abraham And he is righteous and follows God and goes where it is that God would have him go. And then he makes some bad choices. You see Isaac, who has been built up as this child of promise, who follows in his father's footsteps and makes the wrong choices on multiple occasions. And then plays favorites with his son in the way that his father played favorites with his children. You look at David, this man who starts off as a humble shepherd with tremendous faith in God to go fight giants, to battle armies, to even be willing to spare the life of the king who desires to kill him because he is God's anointed one and he would not do harm against him. To being a man who lusts after another man's wife and lies, creates a cover-up, and ultimately has another man killed because he can't stay in line with what God desires for him. And his whole family is broken as a result. These are people with catastrophic stories. But there's another term that I want to share with you this morning. It was coined in the early 1900s by J.R.R. Tolkien, actually. This is eucatastrophe. The good 
downward or the good by way of a turn. That word kata can mean multiple things. It's a preposition. Uh, It can be downward, underneath. It can be beside. It can be by the way of something. And Tolkien said, every good story that reflects the truth of our world is actually a catastrophe, where you are constantly seeing how it could be a downward turn, but in the end, there is a sudden turn for the good. If you read The Lord of the Rings, this is actually the way it works, and I'm going to nerd out for just a second here. There's a character named Gollum who is selfish, who is filled with a desire for something that's outside of himself, and at the end of the story... Because he was spared by the hand of the small hobbit named Frodo, who chose not to kill him when he had the chance, because his uncle had not chosen to kill him when he had the chance, it is ultimately Gollum, this foul creature that destroys the ring that could bind all of Middle-earth under the dominion of the Dark Lord. Through a series of events that seem very unfortunate and and maybe even negative at first reading, why in the world would you ever let this person continue to live if they are wicked and evil? It was only through the wickedness and evil of this individual that there was ultimately the opportunity for the good to come about. A sudden turn at the end that allows for things to result in the way that we always hoped that they would. And I want you now to think about this last little bit of the genealogy of Jesus. You're going to read a bunch of names here that just don't appear in the Bible because they're not, they're not from the testamental eras. Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Suddenly we have these names that aren't associated with the good or the bad. And in the last moment, just before the arrival of Jesus, there are these two individuals named Mary and Joseph. And you know what the Bible has to say about these two individuals before the birth of Christ? Not a lot. But what it does have to say about them is significant. He is a just man. And she is a favored one. That's how scripture describes these two people. Now, neither of them would ever go and sit on a throne of their own. They were not significant somebodies in their own time. Neither of them was in a position of power or authority over the people around them. Neither one of them had made themselves known as great people in their own, even towns. But he was a just man, and she was God's favored one. To me, these small signifiers of who these people are are a eucatastrophic. Eucatastrophic? They are a eucatastrophe in and of themselves. Bad news throughout the whole genealogy. We know that these were great people. They did wonderful things by their faith in God. But look how flawed and broken they were. And at every turn, just as you thought they were going to succeed, they messed up. They did the wrong thing. 
This is not how you get to the Messiah. That's how we would read Scripture over and over again. The Israelite people, as they would read the Old Testament, they would say, when God, when at last will you do what you have promised? Because we thought it was going to be Isaac. We thought it was going to be Jacob. We thought it was going to be Judah. We thought it was going to be David. And it never was. It's all just been bad news the whole time. And now we're an occupied nation. We don't even own our own land. How could it get any worse? And God steps in and says, just wait for the turn. And the person of Jesus has to follow the catastrophe. In order for there to be a turn for the good, things can't have always been so good. There has to have been steps along the way that we can look at and say, you know what, I am so glad that Jesus wasn't Abraham. I am so glad that Jesus wasn't Isaac. I am so glad that Jesus wasn't Amon. I am so glad that Jesus wasn't Solomon because all of those men failed. They all fell short of the kind of journey that we were expecting. But isn't it wonderful that God worked through that journey for so much good? And now I want you to think for just a moment as we begin to conclude the sermon this morning. How many of those people in that genealogy do we find ourselves in? And how many of us realize how powerless we are to be the Messiah? How often can we read the story of Abraham or Isaac and recognize our own failures in them? And if they were imperfect, flawed individuals who could be counted among the genealogy of Jesus, if they were the individuals who could lead ultimately to this great turn in history on which everything hinges... Isn't there hope for us as well? What kind of thing is God doing in the journey that we are currently on? What is it that God is trying to tell in our stories by the way of our failures and the sudden turn that Jesus takes in our lives? It's very possible, I think, for us to spend a lot of time saying, you know what? I am flawed and imperfect and there is no hope for me. But I think the genealogy of Jesus, as we read through it, is the story of the reclamation of hope for people who were hopeless. People who, apart from Jesus himself, could do nothing to rescue themselves. And we find ourselves in the same position that they found themselves in. That the only thing that distinguishes them from the person next to them is their faith. Go back and read the Faith Hall of Fame in the book of Hebrews and recognize that it is not the great works of Abraham that are done. It is the great works of God that are done through the faith of Abraham. That's what God is calling us to. To be the kind of people of such faith that despite the downturns that we've faced. The sudden good news of our story is that we have a Savior who has given us the ability to do great things 
by the faith that we have in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we could look back at our own lives the same way we might look back at Scripture and say, so much of it is catastrophe. People called into loving relationship with God who reject him. People who place kings on thrones, kings that ultimately overthrow the people and place them into bondage to sin and death. And Father, we can look at our own lives and we can see ways in which we've done the same things to ourselves because we've sat on thrones of our own heart. We have given our hearts to the things that are other than you. And our only hope is a sudden good turn. And so, Father, I pray that we recognize what that good turn is. That in the grand scheme of history, the greatest hope that we have is in a child that was born to a just man and your favored one. Father, we pray that we see the great story of the gospel of Christ played out in ways that we would not have expected. And that we proclaim that the good news came not through the plan of man, but through your plan. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if there are ways that you have need of the church, if there are ways we can bless you and walk alongside you and encourage you,